Rumors on a news podcast? What are we thinking? It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn with Chris Warnowski and Laura Johnston, and we're going to start off today by talking about coronavirus rumors. You guys ready to get moving? I always love to talk about rumors. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, here we go. With so many rumors and false bits of information flying about on the coronavirus in Ohio, why did Ohio Governor Mike DeWine take aim at one rumor in particular and eviscerate it during his televised briefing Tuesday? Chris Ranowski, Mike DeWine has been a image of diplomacy and tact and civility in his briefings, and he continued to be yesterday. But for the first time, he he pretty rapidly tore into what he believes to be and says for sure is a false rumor about taking children away from their families. Take us through it, please. Oh, yes. Yeah. So yesterday he he denied a story that has kind of caught fire that said that uh, the government is going to start snatching your children and throwing in, them into FEMA camps. Uh, and he said that there's absolutely no truth to this. And he said that, quote, it's just garbage. He acknowledged during this that it's it's rare for him to talk about rumors. And he he seemed about as annoyed by it as he ever appears to be in public. You know, he maintains a level of diplomacy through this in talking about some of the, you know, federal government nonsense that we've had to sort of endure as a country <laughs> during this pandemic. But but I feel like this was kind of a bridge too far. There was a an order that came out on August 31st that titled the director's second amended order for non-congregate sheltering to be utilized throughout Ohio. That was this, the story then just became this fantastic conspiracy theory that said that uh, FEMA was going to come and take your children. And, and FEMA conspiracy theories are about as old as I am. They, they date back to like the early 1980s when militia groups started far right militia groups started pushing these conspiracy theories and they became, they keep coming back. Like you see them in the, the nineties during the rise of the militia movement there. You see them in the two thousands when Obama was elected. Um, You see it with, coupled with Alex Jones and the Jade Helm conspiracy theories. It's a, it's an old, old, old record that we play every few years. And, and so this far right news site that I'm not going to mention by name actually is sort of doing the, there's so many unanswered questions kind of story and it, and it, and, you know, and then they just kind of release it onto social media and, you know, the, the conspiracy mongers pick it up and, and they, oh, wait, wait, they, wait, I, I'm going to stop you there. Cause you're not going <laughs> to name it, but I'm going to Jack Winter, <laughs> who, who has regularly, who has no journalism background, not a reporter at all has made himself a presence in the governor's briefing. He did this. He, he looked mm-hmm. at separate sets of information, jumped to some conclusions, put it out there. Now, when our reporter talked to him, he goes, well, you know, I put it out there, but then other people ran away with it. He started this. This is his thing. He's he's regularly asking questions of the governor that peddle the conspiracy theories. I do think the governor probably teed off on this one because of his longstanding commitment to children. And he's basically being accused of setting up a system to strip children away from their families, and- which is what he called garbage. And it's and it's worth it, it. It is worth pointing out that we are in a in a time period where there is a lot of overlap between legitimate concerns about child trafficking and the QAnon PizzaGate brand 
style of concern over child trafficking. So this idea of taking children away from people is something that catches fire very quickly on social media. Of course. Uh, and, and then there's a lot of, but, but it's also, it's also seeded in a very disingenuous way that Facebook really does not seem too concerned about dealing with. So, you know, it was, hey, look, Chris, this was the perfect storm. You had a yeah. reporter, a, a, an alleged reporter who saw a chance to tap into that whole FEMA conspiracy thing to mm-hmm. have a viral story that raises questions about the government. So and Mike DeWine said he was getting emails and he was getting hit about it. And, you know, he Mike DeWine doesn't often seem angry, but he did seem torqued about this. It's like, yeah. how dare you make this suggestion and, and ripped it to shreds? Well, and, and what's so interesting about this, at, at least to me, is that if FEMA, if I mean, let's, let's pretend that FEMA is coming for your children. It's Donald Trump's FEMA that would be coming for your children. Nobody seems to see that. And we should, we should not end this segment without mentioning Nino Vitale, who was a state lawmaker who fanned the flames of this and shared it on his accounts and has basically been called irresponsible by DeWine. Everybody. <laughs> by other members of his, his branch of the state government. But, but that's what's so wild about stuff like this. Like if the government is doing something bad, if the government is going to do something nefarious to you now, it's not Donald Trump. It's the deep state. It's this nebulous BS kind of thing that they've been touting for years. But everything good Donald Trump does for you, that's, that's me. That's my part of the government. And nobody, I mean, it's like, I like I cannot believe you made me talk about something this stupid this early. Like I haven't even had my coffee. Like, like honestly, and I and I and, I, and I'm, I'm tired of calling it anything other than stupid. It's stupid, and people but, should but that's be why I, of themselves. Yeah, right. I I think that's why we needed to talk about it early. Is this stuff flourishes? There are lots of people that buy into the nonsense. And and it says something that the governor in a twice weekly statewide televised briefing made it a point to speak in the strongest terms possible to say. And no, I mean, he talked. There's lots of stupid rumors out there, but he he took aim at this anyway. Yeah. Discussion. Throw this this on the pile of race baiting of, you know, conspiracy. I mean, it's it's just more. Oh, God. Like, and, and suggestions <laughs> that you try to vote twice, which is right. front. Yeah. Okay. It's this week in the CLE. With health officials saying that college students who get the coronavirus mostly should not go home where they might spread it, what are colleges doing to quarantine the students and keep them safe? Lord Johnston, when, when Dr. Fauci came out last week and said, I don't think students who get this should go home, it raised questions for us because anybody with a kid would think, my God, my kid has coronavirus. I got to go get them. So we checked it out. What did yeah, we most of these schools around Northeast Ohio have parts of dorms or other buildings that they are setting aside for quarantine or isolation. So exactly where kids are going to do this depends on whether the student lives on or off campus, has a roommate or has a support system at home. If they live alone in their own place, they might be able to quarantine there. If they live off campus, they could do it there. But if they're in a dorm with a roommate, like Cleveland State has set aside 32 rooms at Fenn College and Euclid Commons, and they're saying they're going to offer a blanket of support with coordinating academics. They'll provide meals daily, do daily health checks, and provide mental health services. At Akron U, um, 
the Quaker Square Residence Hall has up to about like 150 places that kids can quarantine and be in isolation. And they're calling in mental health experts to deal with this isolation that these kids are not used to. Okay. You're a parent. <laughs> I'm a parent. Well, what's the first thing you would do if you sent your kid away freshman year in college and he calls home and he says, mom, I've got the coronavirus. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm going to probably go drive down to get it. I mean, I don't know if these kids are actually sick. If they're just like, hey, I'm forced to play video games all day. I don't want to come home. Maybe that's the case because a lot of these kids are going to be like not really that asymptomatic right so if they don't want to come home and some of them might not then i think it's fantastic that the colleges have prepared a way to deal with it but if your kid is sick like i'm when i get sick i still want to call my mom right (laughs) (laughs) exactly i i i find it hard to believe that if a kid is truly gets sick with this that that they're with the fever and the and the horrible cough that parents are going to want to sit home. I just, I don't, I, I know my wife and I, there's no way we would have adhered to that advice, but you're right with the asymptomatic, we probably would have. So it'll be interesting to see how this develops. We're, we see outbreaks. We see that this is not working so far at colleges and universities. We'll have to see what the next few weeks bring. You're listening to this week in the CLE. What does Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose say will happen to people who follow President Donald Trump's advice to try and vote twice? The president says, let's test the security of the voting system by trying to vote twice. What's next? Let's test the security of a bank by going in with a gun and shaking down a teller. Chris Ranowski, <laughs> what will happen to people if they vote absentee and then show up at their voting place and try to vote again? I believe you might get charged with a crime. So uh, voter fraud is a crime. And, uh, you know, it's it's interesting that we hear there's always like this sort of like sleight of hand that the president does where he accuses people of doing something that he is suggesting that his his followers do. And so, you know, we've we've heard him speak a lot about the illegitimacy of our ability to to, to vote by mail, despite the fact that he and most of his family d- d- do it without question. But Frank LaRose, like a lot of probably weary Republicans in state offices, had to address this uh, yesterday and said, uh, do not test our our boards of elections. Uh, They are good at this. Go ahead and submit your ballots once. But you're right. The the president said last Thursday in a series of tweets that uh, his supporters in North Carolina should go to their polling places on election day and try to check if their mail ballots had been received yet and vote a second time if they haven't. And the response to this was such that Twitter flagged two of his tweets for violating its rules about a civic and election integrity. And then Trump repeated it again. In a <laughs> he, he doubled down. Conference. Yeah. That's right. Let's test the IRS by not paying our taxes. Let's see if well, they come after you. Well, well, it remains to be seen whether that's the case. I think the court will give us his uh, his tax returns, and and we'll get, we'll see if if he tested that either. But but no, I you know I mean Larose was out yesterday saying he reminded people that you can go to voteohio.gov/track. And you can actually see, you know, where, you, you know, the status of your absentee ballot or ballot application. And the first wave of absentee ballots are set to be mailed on October 6th. So, you know, this is something Ohio has done for a bit. It's something that it has done without much controversy. Maybe this predates my time here in this state. I mean, can you either of you remember any 
major no. controversy but, about mail-in voting here. But you're you're talking about this like a rational human being. I I'm still <laughs> sitting here shocked that the president of the United States has advocated people commit crimes in some states. Mm-hmm felony crimes. I mean, think about that. The president of the United States is recommending his followers break the damn law. That, that no. is it just me or are you are you sitting back or are you just thinking this president has said all sorts of wild and crazy things so why why react yeah. to this one yeah well yeah i i'm i'm i think i'm more amazed by your capacity to be amazed <laughs> anything I, honestly, I said what's this is laura johnston i said he's still shocked amazingly enough so yeah i, I don't know i mean it's it's the more we spend, I, I I just feel like that we spend a lot of time being aghast at his lack of ethics or whatever. And it's like, well, do people really care about ethics if they also obviously don't care about laws? And and so it, it's it's it, you know, I mean, it's just a long list of things that I, I, I it, it turns my stomach, but I'm not surprised. If that, I if will that. not be surprised if somebody tries to do this, they get charged, and their defense is video of the president of the United States advocating that they do it i mean the only way to fix this is for him to come out and say i shouldn't have said that don't do it because you'll be charged with the crime otherwise this will play out in a courtroom or multiple courtrooms in this country but the thing is is he does not set the laws of this state and so you know you can't you know i i don't think that's a viable defense and not you know that's not going to stop somebody from trying it you're not you you're not going to demand a jury trial play that video for the jury and see what the jury does. Uh, I don't know. I, this one, I get it that we, we keep saying that, you know, maybe maybe a jury of your peers would be, (laughs) but a jury of my peers would be too smart for that. Okay. All right. It's this week in the CLE. What are some of the insights from a Cleveland city council task force study of fatal car accidents on the city streets? Laura Johnson, one of the findings had to do with that a lot of these accidents happen in impoverished neighborhoods, which which kind of threw me because you think about reckless driving knows no bounds. So but but there there was rhyme or reason to what they found. So take us through some of what the findings. Yeah. Were. And we are just talking about Cleveland streets in this. We're not just talking, you know, we're not talking about ma- major highways or interstates. So 37 people are killed each year. Six are sin- seriously injured each week on Cleveland streets because of traffic crashes, which is way higher than I would have imagined. So this is a city task force that started collecting data. They show that one third of all the fatalities and serious injuries occur along just 7% of city streets. And a lot of those pass through impoverished neighborhoods. Um, A lot of them are on the east side of the city. They run through neighborhoods that are largely poor and the residents are African-American. Uh, the longest high trauma stretch is this four mile portion of Kinsman Road from East 55th to the Shaker Heights border, which I'm sure a lot of us have driven before. Um, and then there's some West 25th Street to East 55th. So um, this is really pinpointing the problems. And now they're trying to come up with solutions. The idea that this is mostly on the east side just raises questions. Is it is it that the east side has not had the same investment in traffic engineering and traffic lights and things like that. I mean, I, I, it's, it's a great set of findings without really any cause. And you would think that the cause of this would be necessary. To yeah. I don't that. know if the cause is that they haven't spent money on safety features or, 
or what's going on exactly, but they they have put in plan uh, place plans that they say is going to at least address this problem. So um, they are looking at this map to analyze it, and then they they're thinking about narrowing some of the four lane roads down to two lanes, adding turn lanes, bike lanes, curb extensions to make sidewalks safer. Also, high visibility crosswalks. You've probably seen them. The flash lights when you when you push a button. More traffic lights that have a countdown function, so you know exactly how much time you have to cross. Um, if you're a pedestrian, they might close some streets, but the, if they don't do this, they're afraid the traffic crashes are getting going to get worse. And actually, I would have thought with the coronavirus, they'd say, oh, traffic crashes are down. People are driving less. But because people are driving less, they're driving faster is what they're saying, which I believe. And, yeah, and there's more exactly. people home and, so. and more people are home around the street. This most striking number in there, in this thing to me, was the one third of the accidents occur on 7% of the streets. I mean, that, that seems like, okay, that's a big mm-hmm. target. Let's fix those, that 7%. But anyway, it was, uh, it was, we criticized Cleveland city council for doing basically none of its duties of oversight. Uh, so it's nice to see them come up with some useful information. We'll have to see what they do with it. It's this week in the CLE. What do we know now about the motive for the killing of Cleveland police detective James Skernovitz? Chris Ranowski, the details are coming out quite slowly, but with the charging of some people Tuesday, we did learn some things. Right. So just to give sort of a quick update, two boys and an 18-year-old man have been charged in the shooting of, of the detective. And a lot of them are going to be appearing in court this morning, Wednesday morning, I guess, if I should say that. But one of the things that we learned yesterday is is that the initial indications are that the shooting was the result of a robbery. A detective wrote in court records that the trio uh, shot and killed the detective and a uh, 50-year-old informant during an attempted robbery. But the co- the documents that we have so far don't really say if the suspects took anything in the incident. So again, this is one of those things like you, you mentioned in the lead up that is kind of revealing itself very slowly to us, which, you know, it's understandable. And I mean, it's kind of common in homicide investigations within the city. It's, but there's a good reason for it. I mean, let's think, think about on Friday, they arrested three people. They were sure they had the right guys. And by Saturday or Sunday, they were offering a reward. Mm-hmm. And by Monday, Tuesday, they had arrested three different guys, and they're the ones who were charged. You know, we, anybody that's covered police and crime knows that it's a very fluid situation in those early hours and days. Um, it, I'm just, you know, I wish, I wish there was some way of verifying what we're being told because we're completely at the mercy of what's in the court documents, what the police say. There's no independent voice to, to get information from. Yeah. You know, we apply as much skepticism as we can to, you know, what they tell us in these initial investigations. And, you know, I, we're working on sort of trying to, you know, I, I have Adam Faris is sort of working on a, a bigger piece right now that hopefully will be done this week or next week that, that sort of gets into, you know, how they manage to arrest a bunch of people, hold a press conference and say, we got them. And then, you know, a day later, they're, they're offering rewards for, they put out a public call for more information and for the public's help to find more people. So, you know, yeah, but it, it, I don't, it, it, go ahead. We should be careful. We don't want people to think that this is a criticism of that. I mean, we, no. like I said, I mean, we all know in those early hours, I mean, they wanted to solve this. This is dangerous yeah. people are on the road. 
So they go out, they get information, they get they get people. And as they continue to investigate admirably, they realize, okay, these aren't the guys, you know, and they go out and get the right ones. I mean, it's a very tough tough right. thing to do and so yeah. it is yeah. I, you know, I don't want people to think that it, i was being critical of the investigation what, what i'm saying is that you know there's something led them to these three people initially and what they haven't explained is how they got onto those people and then as a result of that how they ended up getting onto these other people so you know that that's a story that remains to be told and hopefully you know we can figure out a way to tell it sometime this week okay You're listening to This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the Northeast Ohio News. How low is the spending on research into the stillbirth of children compared to other causes of infant death? Laura Johnston, you put together an essay about this uh, because of of your own family's experience with it. And it was kind of shocking to see those numbers. So take us through what uh, what that's about. Sure. I wrote this. My niece was stillborn almost six years ago, so it's really close to my family and an issue that I knew nothing about uh, really before my niece, my sister had her stillborn child, Liddy. And and it, it's something that makes me pretty angry because uh, stillbirth kills 24,000 babies a year in the United States, but yet it's really not talked about and it's really not researched much. So in 2016, the latest uh, numbers I could find, according to the National Institutes of Health, $16 million was spent to research sudden infant death syndrome, which is SIDS, if it's a baby kind of dies on without another uh, reason uh, within the first year of life. There's $240 million spent on preterm issues, low birth weight and health of newborns, $351 million on pediatric cancer and 4.7 million on stillbirth. So, and it's, it's just not a hugely recognized issue. I think partly because it is so silent, these, these children are born dead. And so you don't see like fundraisers for them on Facebook and people might not feel comfortable talking about it. There's a stigma attached. And I'm just really hoping to bring the issue into light because most stillbirths are preventable. People, people just don't know anything about it. Well, and as you know, it's incredibly traumatic, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's devastating to the family. Your, your sister has been doing something since to raise awareness and raise money. Right. This is the fifth year that she has hosted Liddy's Loop, which is obviously named after her daughter. And it's usually a walk um, in a run in Western or actually in Gahanna uh, near Columbus. And it's a big gathering of families who have lost children. And it's very supportive. They read the name of the babies a lot aloud. They're on the back of the t-shirts. And I think it's very healing for these families. It also raises up to $20,000 a year for stillbirth research. Um, this year it's going to be held virtually, but you can still donate. They've raised already $12,000 um, and the event is September 19th. So I'll be wearing my t-shirt and walking around my neighborhood. But I think it's pretty incredible that in the face of these statistics with not a lot of government and university support, that these mothers and families are taking it upon themselves to raise awareness and raise money. Okay. Uh, Thanks for putting yourself out there and laying that out there. It was a very informative piece of writing. It's this week in the CLE. Does New York have something against Ohio? Why is Ohio back on the bad list of New York coronavirus states? Chris Janowski, we we couldn't go to New York. Then we could go to New York. Now we can't go to New York. What's, What's that about? Right. So Ohioans who travel to New York, I mean, you can go, but um, you, you're going to have to uh, quarantine for 14 days upon your arrival. Uh, we were placed back on New York's 
travel advisory uh, list thanks to a recent spike in positive COVID-19 cases in our state. Um, and you're right, this is the second time that we landed on the list. New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut have some of the strictest interstate travel requirements in the United States. And um, the three states use this metric that places states on its list, um, which is either a positive test rate higher than 10 per 100,000 residents or a seven-day rolling average uh, of, let's see, or a 10% or higher positivity rate over a seven-day rolling average. According to a website, Ohio has a 4.1 positivity rate on recent tests and a positive test rate of 10.3 residents per 100,000. So we sort of go over that threshold. And the, but there's a lag, right? I mean, you know, we were racing up the numbers um, a week ago and a week and a half ago. Uh, but, but for the past few days, we've been way below. It's almost like New York is reacting to a week old trend. Now it's, it was a holiday weekend. Reporting mm-hmm. was bad. So today we could see 1500 cases and it would justify what New York is doing. It just seems like that the, this kind of thing has a, a lag that doesn't really capture real time experience. Well, and I, yeah, but I, and I think the, the, increase in our numbers is probably has more to do with the restarting of classes at colleges and, and K through 12 buildings. So I, I think, you know, it, it's, you know, every two weeks after a major population event, like a holiday or a return to school, you're going to start seeing an increase in numbers. It, I think it's just, it's, that's kind of what the the norm is now. So, you know, if New York is behind, I, you know, that's probably why it's, it's the, you know, this website that, or the, the way that they're collecting their data is probably, you know, based on older numbers. So, you know, okay. so, you know, go to, go to New York if you want, but hunker down for two weeks and, you know, don't try to, uh, don't get other people sick. Okay. This week in the CLE, what has men stressed out during the coronavirus pandemic, according to a new Cleveland Clinic survey? I'm going to turn to the woman on this panel to explain what's wrong with the men. Laura Johnston, what's wrong with the men? So many things, Chris. I'm just kidding. Um, So the clinic survey was part of the clinic's fifth annual educational campaign, Mention It, and they focus on men's health issue because they say too often men aren't talking about their health issue or seeking help for them. So they surveyed a thousand American men, 18 and older, about the effects of the, the pandemic and their lives and health over the past six months. And like no surprise on every other survey we've heard, people are not feeling great about COVID. Um, that mental health is really suffering as we're in month seven of you know, an interrupted life. So about 70, oh, hell. <laughs> yeah, right? about 77% of men reported an increase in stress. More than half felt the pandemic hurt their mental health worse than the 2008 recession. Um, they're worried about the health of their families. They're worried about the economy. And um, yeah, they're kind of just feeling, feeling <laughs> the stress like everybody else. I, I, what, what I, what interested me here was why focus on men? I mean, is there really a gender difference in terms of stress? I mean, I, I get my my experience with the people I deal with is the stress load is is pretty even. Actually, you might make an argument that it's heavier on the women because, as we've reported, they've been stuck with a lot of the extra duties. Right. Especially like in families with children, moms have have a lot of times been the brunt, boring the brunt of that. But no, the, the idea behind this is that men are not 
getting help when they need it, that they're loath to go to the doctor. They don't want to talk about their mental health issues. So I understand that. And I think it's, you know, um, it makes sense. I don't think they're saying that men are more stressed out than women. It's just that this survey for five years has focused on men's health. There is a little bright spot in this about almost half, 45% of men said they felt healthier now than they did before the outbreak. So maybe they're dealing with their stress with exercise. And 30% of participants said they were getting more sleep. So I think this is an interesting issue we should look into more. Um, I think people are sleeping more during the pandemic. They don't have to commute. They don't have to be up as early. And then if they sleep longer, they don't have to face the day quite as much. Okay, we'll leave it there. It's this week in the CLE. Good discussion. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to this week in the CLE. We'll be back with another episode tomorrow. Tomorrow.